We've had we've had some great speakers this weekend. Uh, I'm very thankful for Roger. Dr. Roger Fankhauser has been here to teach with us. Dr. Charlie Bean has been here to teach with us. Uh, and Dr. J. Paul Tanner is here. Uh, I'm very excited to have him come up. Uh, what a treat it is. And uh, he is the Middle East Director. Is that correct title? Middle East Director of B World. And what that stands for is Biblical Education by Extension. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. But he will fly over to the Middle East, and there will be arrangements made for him to go into closed countries or to meet pastors of closed countries on the border somewhere, and they will have extensive teaching sessions uh, that will be roundtables, essentially, that they have of, of discussion and dialogue over the concepts of the Scripture to encourage them to be able to go back and to teach their people in those closed countries. Uh, to me, that's an incredible, incredible feat that the Lord's called him to. Uh, thankful for his brilliant mind. He's just released this massive commentary on Daniel. It actually comes out in paper form in October. Uh, everyone that came to the conference received a copy of his commentary on Hebrews. Uh, I think we've been very blessed. I've been blessed by his ministry even before we ever met one another. So if you would, please welcome him to the pulpit. Pastor Jeremy, I want to thank you and thank all of you at Grace Bible for having uh, me here. This is my second time to be in Wisconsin. I've been enjoying the uh, the conference the last few days, and uh, along with Roger and Charlie Bing, and um, I'm so thankful to have this experience with you, and I hope it won't be my last time. One of the cultural buzzwords of our day is the expression deconvert. Maybe you've heard about this. We've had people that are now coming forward to renounce their faith in Christ. We've even had pastors in our country who have come to a point of disbelieving, of saying what they once had believed, their faith in Christ, they no longer do so. Now this has become such an issue that the online website of Christian Post, which has a lot of Christian news, I watch it, look at it frequently, over the, this last year, they ran a series of articles entitled Leaving Christianity. And one of those uh, articles that drew my interest was, the title of it was, I Lost My Faith in a Chick-fil-A. It's a story about a young man named Luke, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about uh, Luke's background. Uh, Luke grew up in, and this is a true story, by the way, Luke grew up in a Christian home, and uh, from a very early age, he was homeschooled. He memorized lots of scripture. In fact, they used to have him come up in front of church groups to recite books of the Bible. He memorized most of the New Testament. His life ambition as a young man was to be an apologist for Jesus Christ, where he would defend the faith against all attacks against it. But there began to be questions in his mind that arose at one point. A lot of it stemmed back to the whole issue of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So he had trouble reconciling what the Bible had to say about how God created everything in six days, according to Genesis 1, with what he was hearing from those who claimed to be scientists. And this kind of set him on a pathway of asking more questions and beginning to wonder if what he had believed all of his life was really true after all, because if he couldn't trust what he had read in Genesis 1, how was he going to trust what it had to say about the gospel when we come to Jesus Christ? Finally, he's 
sitting in a uh, Chick-fil-A restaurant one day. He's reading a book by a secular uh, philosopher, and he comes to a point where he said, you know, it's just not true. What I've believed all this time isn't really true. He writes these words in the article, very kind of alarming. I dropped my book. I went into the men's room. I sat on the toilet and I bawled my eyes out for an hour and a half. It was over. I was an atheist. Having been drugged, kicking and screaming by the evidence that every desire, incentive, and goal that I had set out with. It was all for nothing but to learn that my curiosity would not sleep until my desire to be an effective apologist left me with nothing to defend. I had wanted nothing more than to reinforce my faith, but willing myself to believe something that just didn't make sense was no longer sustainable. He went on and, uh, at the close of that to say, give this words, I guess, a, a admonition or warning to us. Evangelicalism is on the decline. As fewer people each generation grow up with Christianity as their normal, the apologetics that have been fairly effective at keeping believers in will have to evolve if they want to move forward in an increasingly secular world. I probably don't need to tell you about the number of young people that go off to college and come to a point where they turn away from their Christian faith. The author of Hebrews faced a similar situation. He was writing to people who had come out of a Jewish background to faith to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet they were going through difficult times because their faith was being persecuted. Naturally, those who still remain in Judaism, you know, um, ridiculed them and persecuted them in different ways. And they were being tempted to turn away from the faith that they had believed in. You may be sitting there this morning and saying, well, Brother Paul, my issue isn't one of deconverting. I know that I am solid, a solid believer in Jesus Christ. But there are dis- discouragements that are, come upon all of us. There are hard times that we face and we have to go through, and our faith gets tested. Over the last, uh, during this year, I think we've all seen a number of things that would be classified as discouraging. Of course, the COVID crisis has come about, you know, this has also been um, joined with that would be a lot of people losing their jobs and facing uh, financial challenges that they, you know, had not uh, been used to. There's all the racial strife that's going on in our country right now and fighting in the streets. There's increased uh, tension about the upcoming election and what that's going to mean for our country and where we go from here. And if that's not enough, with all the billions of dollars that have been handed out, printed money that really isn't backed up by anything, what's going to be the implications for us for a year from now or two years from now as the results come back to haunt us? The question I have for you this morning is, how are your faith holding up through all this? Would you say that you have an enduring faith, one that's bearing up well underneath all the challenges to it? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 39, is going to tell us about the kind of faith we need for when hard times begin to rock our world. Before we look into the text of God's Word, 
I'd ask you to invite you to bow and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the glorious name of Jesus Christ to pray that you would have your way this morning with us. You would speak to our hearts. We might understand that we're not only people of faith, but we're called to have an enduring faith. Lord, I, I know that in an audience this size, there are some that are struggling this morning. Maybe they're being tempted to turn away. That Their faith is languishing. I pray that you would call them upward to a greater faith because you are a greater God than anything we face. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a little orientation now. We're dropping into the latter part of Hebrews chapter 10. For throughout chapters 8, 9, and 10 of uh, the book of Hebrews, the author has been trying to make a very persuasive argument that God has brought in a new covenant that is based on a better sacrifice. And of course, that sacrifice is none, uh, nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And that is a blood sacrifice that gives forgiveness of sins, something that animal sacrifices could never do. And then he went on to admonish the audience to hold fast to the confession of faith that they had made. And in verses 26 through 31, he warned them about the danger of turning away from that and what might await them, uh, a stern discipline from God if they were to do so. But at the end of the chapter now, he turns with more of a, a positive word. He wants to encourage them and see them to uh, help them to finish well. So we come to uh, verses 32 through 34, and uh, um, well, I should say uh, verses 32 through 39, this last paragraph of the book, it's going to divide it up into three parts. He looks at their past, he looks at the present, and he looks at the future. So first the past, there are past problems, one of facing hardship and suffering to follow Christ. So here's what he says to these Jewish uh, believers in Christ who had suffered once. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So life had been uh, really uh, tough for them. And as for us, we think about application to our lives. There's maybe as Americans, we face ridicule or reproaches of being believers. We all have difficulties that we endure. We might be skipped over for a promotion because of our faith in Christ. We might be denied tenure at a, if we were a university professor. Some have faced lawsuits uh, in our country for their professional faith in Christ and the stance that they had taken. Most of us in the country of America, though, don't face the kind of persecution that most Christians in the rest of the world have to face, which is a very, um, very can oftentimes be a very physical one. Uh, I've been working in the country of Syria for a number of years, actually since 2007, uh, up until the Civil War started, I was going in four times a year to do training in, in Syria. And now I'm uh, working, bringing some believers outside the country to do training with them. 
But I can remember uh, with one group of believers that we had in the city of Damascus, just not very far from a street called Straight that ran through the old city of Damascus. We had about 15 believers that were going through our training. And uh, some of them were from a Muslim background. Others were not. But I remember one young girl that was um, from the Muslim background. She, her family was still um, professing Muslims. And they did not know about her faith in Christ. And she could not tell them because of the repercussions there would be for her, you know, if she were to do so. She had a copy of what in Arabic we call the Injil, the New Testament. And one of her siblings found a copy of that in her bedroom one day. Uh, the sibling told the other family members. And her family gathered her and took her and brought her out on the street. And they beat her to a pulp and left her bleeding on the curb. They told her if she dared to go back and meet with the Christians again, they would kill her. And her life was threatened. I've never had to face something quite like that. The believers in the country actually had to help her to get out of the country because she was convinced of the, her faith in Christ and was determined to live for him. The author of Hebrews reminds these Jewish believers to whom he wrote that they had a better possession than an abiding one. That better possession would be a heavenly reward, which would include living in the new Jerusalem of Christ's kingdom. I think uh, this passage helps us to put things into perspective about what's really important in life. A number of years ago, uh, my wife and I, my wife and Linda, by the way, we've been married for 46 years. I was in the army when we got uh, married and I was stationed in Germany. So we were living over there. Had a three-day weekend. We decided to go to Paris uh, in our little bitty Volkswagen that we had. We took, I went to the, the army supply store. I got a tent and some uh, sleeping bags and stuff and we drove to Paris. Now you say, Camping out in Paris, really? You do something like that? And, well, we didn't have a lot of money, so and not too far from where they have the Arc de Triomphe in, in Paris, there is a park where you can actually do camping, so we tried that. Uh, it was still early spring, so we were, uh, it was pretty cold. And uh, the second night we decided we would get a cheap hotel to stay in. So I left my uh, little Volkswagen parked outside of the hotel, and... Uh, I, had, I left all the sleeping bags and the tents and everything just piled up in, in the back seat. Well, we didn't have very much at that point in our life. We were newly married. We were happy. We had each other. That was enough. But I had one thing of value, and that was I enjoyed photography, and I had this case with all this expensive camera equipment that I acquired in the military. And I wasn't being very thoughtful, and I accidentally, unintentionally, left it in the back seat of the car. I think it had the sleeping bags over it or something. The next morning, after we had spent the night, we came out, and I noticed that the little side window on my Volkswagen was open. I didn't think I'd left it open. And sure enough, somebody had broken into the, uh, the car during the night, had taken the, the camera case with all the equipment worth hundreds of dollars, probably our only valuable earthly possession, and we never saw it again. We went back up to the hotel room. We sat on the edge of the bed, and, and the Lord spoke to us. He says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, you know, or rot, uh, rust, you know, destroys, moth get to, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
And, you know, I never forgot that. It really helped me put in perspective, you know, what are we going to value in life that's really of value? Everything here that we have is temporary. What matters the most is how we're going to spend eternity. And when you have that kind of attitude, it affects how uh, everything, all the decisions that you make in life. Well, having uh, exposed their past problems of facing hardship and suffering, he now moves on to their present situation. They have a present need, and that is one of enduring in faith to gain an eternal reward. This is verses 35 and 36. So we'll read those verses. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. These are probably the the two most important verses in in the book. I think they capsulize really what the, the whole book is really about. He speaks about a confidence here. Now, sometimes we say, well, if you go into a job interview, you want to be very self, you know, very confident going in there and, you know, give an aroma of being uh, confident. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. It's not a confidence in ourselves, but rather a a confidence in the sufficiency of Christ and his shed blood in our behalf. If you look back how the author uses this term confidence earlier in the book, we can get his point. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, that is that worshiping community of believers, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That would be our confidence in him. And then uh, he says again in chapter 10, verse 19, the same chapter we're looking at, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So this confidence is not one in ourselves, but it's a confidence in Christ and what he has accomplished for us. His shed blood has provided for the covering of our sins so that we can be completely forgiven by God. And these Jewish believers to whom the author wrote need to be entirely convinced of that truth and to stick with it. He tells them they have a need. In uh, verse 36, you have need of endurance. Endurance is a steadfastness to hold up under pressure and not cave in when the going gets tough. A couple years ago, a a book came out and followed by a movie called Unbroken. It tells a story about Louis Zamperini. Louis was a track star as a young man, even participated in the 1936 Olympics. World War II came along, he became part of a bombardier squadron and a B-24 flying over the Pacific. Their plane went down and they were adrift at sea for 47 days, nearly died just in, in that alone. They finally came to an island, but then they were captured by the Japanese, and he spent most of World War II in a Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp. Uh, during that time, there was a, a prison guard that really hated him. And he was determined to bring, to break Louis's will. And no matter how hard, uh, no matter what he did to him, no matter how much he beat him or starved him nearly to death, you know, Louis refused, you know, to admit that uh, he was defeated. And uh, he wasn't a Christian. He was going through, he was enduring all of this suffering that he had to do, uh, just determined uh, to get through this and 
refused to let this guy get the better of him. After the war was over, he was freed as a prisoner of war. He actually became an alcoholic at a point, and but then his wife attended a Billy Graham crusade in 1949 and became a believer. She got Louis to go with her to a, a meeting, and he, his eyes were finally opened to what he really needed in life. And that the Lord broke that stubborn will, you know, in him, and brought him to faith in Christ. Even unbelievers can endure hard things. But the, the author of Hebrews here is calling us to endure through, through hardships and not give up on our faith in Christ. That's the uh, particular point of discussion you know, here. And there's a motivation for that. He says there's a reward in view. Actually, that's not correct. It says there's a great reward in view, not just simply a reward. So that's the motivation for why, they, uh, why we have this enduring faith. You know, we're all used, I think, to rewards. Uh, when I was a child, I got rewards if I did certain chores around the house. It wasn't much in those days, maybe 25 cents, maybe 50 cents if I mowed the entire lawn. Got mo- Sometimes we get uh, motivated uh, rewards, you know, for grades at school. If you got so many A's, you got this. If you got some B's, you got that. If it went lower, maybe you got nothing. I had to, had to take music lessons at one point. Didn't really like it, but, you know, the music teacher gave me a a star in the booklet, I might have gotten a reward for that. And then you go to college and you, you graduate, and maybe you graduate with honors and you get rewards. So we're all accustomed to the concept of rewards. But all those things are earthly rewards. And when you get to be old and then you're about to, to die, you know, you think, well, really, what is all of that? It's not much. I don't, can't take it with me, you know, beyond the grave. But the author of Hebrews is talking about a reward that goes beyond the grave. It's a great reward that awaits you in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. As some people might say, well, you know, as long as I get to heaven, I think that's enough. I want to say to you, that is a very immature attitude. It's not fully believing all that God has spoken to us about in his word. Some people may say, oh, if you had only told me, I would have been willing to do anything. You see, there comes a point when it's too late to go back and live your life over again. You don't get a, a second chance to go through it. So this is your opportunity you know, to, for your life. And what awaits you in eternity is going to uh, be related. There's a correlation to how you're living you know, your life now and whether you have an enduring faith and you're glorifying God in your life. Thus far, the author has talked about their past problems or their hardships their present need to have an enduring faith. And now he's going to move on to the future to talk about what awaits them facing Christ at his return. And this is verses 37 through 39. The author is going to quote from two passages of Scripture. One is Isaiah 26 and the other Habakkuk chapter 2. Well, let me read these verses. Verse 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, And will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Well, this is a very interesting little passage here. So it talks about he who is coming will come. Who is he talking about? 
Well, this would uh, relates back to a promise that was made in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a messianic expression, the coming one. So we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So there's this prediction that somewhere in the future there would be one who was a prophet like Moses uh, that God, that all the people were to listen to. Later on, um, when John the Baptist was on the scene, people came asking of him if he were the Christ. And of course he denied being the Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, the coming one, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, the Messianic credentials were clear. Yes, he was the Messiah. He was the coming one. So in the Hebrews chapter 10, it says the coming one will come and will not delay. So when it says he will come, that's, of course, looking to the future. So we're looking at the second coming of Christ here. And he will not delay. So there's a perfect timing in God's plan. Jesus is going to return at just the perfect time. The verse goes on to say, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So there's one person in view here, and that's one that's called my righteous one. You know, when we become a Christian, we receive a righteousness of Christ into our lives. Philippians 3 calls it the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So God gives us, imputes into us a righteousness that's not our own. But here the author is saying that one who, that person who is the righteous one, there's two ways his life might go. One is to live by faith. The other is to shrink back. That is to shrink back in unbelief and turn away uh, from following Christ. Why does he, if the second coming is in view here, what does that really have to do uh, then with this, this point? Well, the point is that uh, when the Lord returns, our life is going to be reviewed. There is what the New Testament calls the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes called the judgment seat of God. A number of passages speak about this. Uh, I'll read at least uh, one of them. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what this passage is teaching us is that each one of us who are believers in Christ are going to individually have to appear before our Lord one day upon his return. And the purpose of it is going to be to evaluate your life. It's not a, the purpose is not for punishment because your sin has already been completely forgiven. But the Lord will examine your life to see what uh, you've done that is rewardable and what should be your, uh, your reward awaiting you, you know, in his kingdom. So we will all have to go through this experience. And 
I think one thing we know for sure is that the Lord is going to know our hearts. He can see every single thing about our life. He knows everything we've done from the moment we were born to the moment we take our last breath of air. And he will know whether we have endured in faith or whether we have been one, that is, whether we had a courageous faith, or perhaps if we shrunk back out of shame or fear. And the last verse of this passage, it's kind of strong words, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The destruction he's talking about here is not the destruction of hell. Notice he doesn't really say a loss of salvation. He doesn't say they're going to end up in hell. Just a destructed, or we might want to call it a wasted life, might be a better way of expressing that. The words that are that appear here in, in the Greek text are, and we don't, we don't see them because the word life is actually, or the word soul is the word suke, which is sometimes translated life. But some of the terminology in this verse is also found over in a passage in the Gospels. Uh, I'm thinking of Matthew 16, 24 and 25. This is where the Lord was addressing Peter and the other disciples. He had announced to them for the first time that he was going to be going to Jerusalem. And when he got there, the scribes and the Pharisees were going to uh, take him and he would be killed and, and so forth. Peter tried to talk him out of that. Uh, Peter didn't understand all the Lord's plan at that time. And so the Lord had to give the disciples a little lesson at that point about what it means to be committed uh, to the will of God. In Matthew 16, 24 through 25, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, that is, get off of your agenda, get onto God's agenda, take up his cross, be willing to suffer, if called upon, even martyrdom, if it be so, and follow me, is get in line with the will of God. Forever would save his life, save his suke, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, he's not talking about where you're going to spend eternity, heaven or hell, but really what's going to be the outcome of your life when you have to stand before God and whether it'll show up as just a wasted life that wasn't well spent or whether the Lord can see that there was a great life of faith and a commitment to the Lord in which he's going to reward you, you know, for that. So you can end up empty-handed or empty or going into the Lord's kingdom, you know, with a, a great reward in hand. We come to the close to the sermon. You know, none of us are exempt from uh, experiencing hard times. I don't know what all of you are going through right now. Some of you um, may be doing just great and you feel uh, wonderful about everything in life. And some of you may be going some very difficult times. It, maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're struggling to make ends meet. Maybe your marriage is in trouble or could be one of a host of many other things. You know, the New Testament has a lot to say to us as believers about, you know, standing firm and when we're facing hardships, when we're facing trials, when we're facing a persecution, it's probably going to get more difficult for us rather than better. I think as we look at the landscape in our country right now, we realize uh, something serious is going on like that none of us have ever seen uh, before. I go out to, uh, I've traveled in 40-something countries of the world, so I have some idea about what, how believers live elsewhere. And many of them face 
hardships like we don't even know anything about, you know, here in this country. So what awaits us? We don't know. We're going to find out. But we're going to need a strong faith, I think, to go through those times. But hopefully we've learned something from Hebrews 10, 32 through 39 this morning, that we need an, an enduring faith that will survive and be strong through these times. I think the, there's a lesson to this whole passage, that when hard times come, a faith that endures is a faith Christ rewards. When hard times come, a faith that endures is a faith Christ rewards. Back when I was um, in seminary, I had a part-time job working at a, a bank in uh, downtown Dallas. And I would typically ride a bus into town and ride it back home. And that was kind of a good time for me to do a little bit of devotional reading. So much of the time I had to do technical reading for seminary studies. But I like to do uh, devotional reading, and I would particularly enjoyed reading uh, missionary biographies. One of the uh, ones that uh, or I, I should say that... Uh, all this time, I think God was preparing me for the mission field. I didn't know I would end up spending most of my life as a missionary. But my wife now, uh, we've been missionaries in the Philippines and for many years in Singapore. And finally, we were living in the Middle East in Amman, Jordan, uh, for a number of years. And God was using that uh, to prepare me for it. One of the books that I enjoyed reading was Shadow of the Almighty, written by Elizabeth Elliot. Maybe you've... Uh, read that, probably a lot of you have, a great missionary uh, book. Uh, in the prologue to the book, Elizabeth Elliot talks about a journal that her husband, uh, Jim Elliot, kept. And uh, one morning uh, in his personal time with the Lord, Jim Elliot came to uh, Luke 9.24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? but forfeits his soul. After meditating on that verse, that morning Jim Elliot wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot's desire was to, that was it, by the way, in October 1949, Jim and Elizabeth both went on to be uh, missionaries in uh, Ecuador. It was Jim's uh, desire to, to be able to bring the gospel to some unreached uh, people. And so uh, he set out uh, to do that. In fact, uh, Jim and Elliot were married uh, in Ecuador after arriving there. And his goal was uh, reaching a particular Indian group called the, the Huwarani and along with uh, several other men that joined him in this, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian. So they had been uh, trying to reach this tribe that had never been reached before, didn't know anything about Christ at all. And they had tried uh, dropping some gifts from an airplane uh, to the people. Then they had a plan that one day, um, January the 8th, 1956, they would land their little Piper airplane on a sandbar along the Carrere River in Ecuador and hopefully be able to you know, make the first encounter uh, with this uh, Indian tribe. Unfortunately, things didn't go uh, quite as they had planned. Uh, the, the Indians thought that they were coming for hostile reasons, and a number of the warriors in the tribe speared each one of them to death. 
Jim Elliott was 28 years old. He left behind, you know, his young bride, Elizabeth, and a one-year-old daughter, Valerie. But his life wasn't wasted. Elizabeth Elliot went to write a, another book called Through Gates of Splendor. It turned out that Elizabeth and another one of the ladies, actually, uh, after a time of grieving and some time had passed, they stayed on in Ecuador. And a number of these uh, Indians of this tribe came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You see, Jim's life wasn't wasted for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, the Indians that he so much hoped to reach, they got reached. It cost him his life, but he'll have fellowship with him forevermore in the, in the Lord's kingdom. His life was short-lived. I mean, he went out at age 28. But yet, I'm confident he has a great reward waiting him because he had an enduring faith that could go through whatever he was called upon to do. So I ask you a question this morning. How is your faith? What would the Lord say about it? Is it one that endures through the hard times, the difficulties of life? Or is it one that's shrinking back and it's kind of like dying on the vine? The author of Hebrews wants to encourage us to have an enduring faith through the hard times. Because when hard times come, a faith that endures is a faith Christ rewards. And I assure you, that reward will be worth more than anything that this world has to offer. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you this morning as we have looked into your word and we see the great value you put upon faith, an enduring faith, a faith that holds us steadfast through the difficult times. Lord, I, I'm sure that there are some in here that feel like they're going through difficult times. Maybe their faith is waning. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen them. Help them to draw their strength from you and get their eyes upon Jesus Christ, the Lord and the Savior. Lord, we don't need any more Lukes that lose their faith in the Chick-fil-A. We want to be men and women who are strong of faith and receive a great reward from our Savior. I pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.